This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So I am in um, New York City at an, an exceptionally mediocre hotel. And, uh, and I leave from here for Florida for a better hotel. Um, and, but I'm, but, but I am nothing if not a servant of the remnant listeners. So we are continuing a pace with, uh, new episodes. A bunch of people have asked me for more AEI colleagues and, uh, I, um, again, am your servant. So I have for the first time, uh, my colleague from the American Enterprise Institute, Dalibor Rohawk. I, sorry. I should say Dalibor Rohach, even though he has conceded that Americans will just never be able to pronounce a standalone C at the end of a name the way uh, you're supposed to in Slovakian. He's, a, he's my colleague at AEI. He's a senior fellow. He's also a research associate at the Wilfried Martin Center for European Studies in Brussels and a fellow at the Anglo-American University in Prague. Uh, his books include Towards an Imperfect Union, A Conservative Case for the EU, and that's right, In Defense of Globalism. Um, he also contributes to the AI podcast, The Eastern Front, which is primarily about European security. So we should probably talk about something about uh, European security or the EU or uh, uh, things of that nature. Uh, Dalibor, welcome uh, to The Remnant. Jonah, thank you so much. This has been on my bucket list for a long time. So whatever happens next, I can now die as a happy man. <laughs> so I, I got to ask, because I, I love accents. Um, how often do people ask you if you're Austrian? Because there's a little bit of a Schwarzenegger ring to, to your accent. It's funny that you say that. Uh, I mean, I always thought that I had a very sort of thick Slavic accent. Uh, but most Americans, I, I don't think, can sort of pin it down very easily. So, so I was, yeah, the sort of mention of German or Swedish, actually, on, on a couple uh -huh, of occasions I can see that. Yeah. sort of surprised me. Uh, and I, I mean, I've sort of given up any hope on trying to do anything with my accent. I think I'm just sort of stuck with it for the rest of my, my life. Oh, it's a good accent. I mean, it, it, I mean, the Austrian comes in mind in part because of the sound, but also because you're about 400 pounds and a huge muscle bound guy. 
And uh, it also chimes well with uh, Raihan Salam's claim about me, namely that I was a Danubian thinker, <laughs> referring to my, you know, love of Hayek and international federalism and that kind of stuff. <laughs> so um, why don't we start with the the grimmest part? Um, um, what's your assessment of how the the war in Ukraine is going right now? Are you Upbeat about Ukraine's future, uh, sanguine. You know, how do you see it? Uh, Joe, I have to say, I'm, I'm concerned, and I've become more concerned over the past couple of weeks. Especially talking to my friends, people on the sort of center left in the think tank industry, who I suspect are more attuned to the thinking of the administration than I am on this. Where um, there seems to be uh, a of convention, new conventional wisdom congealing, namely uh, that this war will come to an end uh, at some point and there'll be negotiations and those negotiations will not be preceded by a sound and decisive defeat of Russia. I always took it as, as a given since the beginning of this war that the only way this can end is if the Russians are driven out of Ukraine, if the Kremlin is soundly defeated, if it's clear to everybody, Putin included, uh, and then you can negotiate uh, about what's next and what, what sort of shape and form the, the peace settlement takes. And, 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 and my sense is that we might be getting to the you know, negotiations phase before that happens. And I think it would be a terrible mistake uh, on, on, on our part. Uh, and it would be a direct result from from where I said of the drip, drip, drip approach towards helping Ukraine, giving them, you know, just what they need to defend themselves and keep the Russians at bay, but not enough for them to be able to to retake uh, retake that territory. Uh, I mean, I hope I'm wrong in this, uh, uh, but but if it does happen, I, I suspect it will only be a temporary respite from from fighting. It would give. Russia a, a chance, an opportunity to rebuild its military, reconstitute, and, and, and then launch hostilities at, 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 at some point later. And uh, there's always this sort of cop-out that the administration is using, and, and obviously Europeans as well, which they say, well, it, it's up to Ukrainians to decide when they want to negotiate and, and what sort of compromise they want to strike with Russia. Uh, but it's a cop-out because we... Uh, obviously have near absolute control over the kind of assistance and the military assistance in particular that the Ukrainians get. So so if we, you know, reduce our aid to a trickle, uh, then the range of options available to the Ukrainians is much smaller than if we are front loading the assistance and, and enable the Ukrainians to conduct major offensive offensive operations. So 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 I've been always I mean since the beginning I've been struggling with this. Uh the uh, um, the, the, the assistance to Ukraine has, as my colleague Giselle, half, you know, friend of the AI says, uh, it's, it's been, you know, one of the best things that the administration have done. Uh, and it also has been one of the most frustrating things we've, we've witnessed because of, because of the sort of slow, slowness and, 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 and the hesitant nature of the, of the response. So, um, we should sort of do a, a level setting here, um, what is your, it, it, this is such a strange time because the people you end up having to make the case for why this is important for na for America or for national security um, or just simply the right thing to do tend to be on the right. 
which normally it would be they would be on the left, but things are so scrambled these days. Um, what is your case for why it is in America's interest um, that Russia lose and Ukraine win in this? Is it a realist argument? Is it a idealistic argument? Because I mean, you are a EU guy and like those are fighting words for a lot of people on the Republican Party. So like, what is your case for just a rational cold um, analysis about why it's in American interest to see this thing through to a Ukrainian victory? Uh, Yeah, there are many different arguments you could make. You can talk about, you know, a rules-based order and our interest in preserving a Europe in which borders are not being revised by force, uh, the sort of precedent this would set for for other countries around the world. But but I think ultimately, uh, I mean, it was uh, I mean, Senator Mitch McConnell, who, who I think very succinctly described what the case for helping Ukraine was around the time of, of, of Zelensky's visit to, to Washington uh, in, in December, when, the, when he said, you know, it's not an act of charity. It's not something we do because we are nice or because we are sort of guided by by the sort of higher ideals of, of how you know the international uh, sphere should be should be organized it's really about uh, us making sure that I mean Europe remains stable remains prosperous uh, the European continent is you know major trading partner major ally I mean we need Europeans to to, to help us deal with China down the road and and so the idea that we should allow Russian tanks on the border of NATO along all that long border that that, that NATO countries share with, with Ukraine. I mean, it's certainly not something that would be in, in our sort of, it's certainly not in Europe, European security interest, and it's it's certainly not in, in ours either because we are treaty bound to defend those countries. I mean, defending Poland becomes much more harder if Ukraine becomes a destabilized and more dangerous country, you know, being subverted by by Russia, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, the economic chaos that that downfall of Ukraine would provoke would, again, not be good for America's working classes, McConnell says, and I, 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 I agree. And, uh, and I, there is also something to be said about setting precedents. I mean, it's not a coincidence that we are having a very intense conversation about Taiwan, about risks to Taiwan security, and people are sort of waking up to everything that needs to be done to, 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 to help Taiwan Defend itself in case of a, of, a, of a Chinese invasion, and and that's been really set in motion by, by 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 this experience of, of 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 of, of Ukraine. So, so so our sort of immediate interest, I think, are really help Ukrainians. You know, whatever happens to Ukraine, I, I think our immediate interest is to help Ukrainians, uh, just erode and 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 debilitate Russian military capabilities to the point at which Russia ceases to be a major threat to its with neighbors and and there is an opportunity to do that and do that for a for a, for a, for a, for, a, for a generation so so you know even if you sort of don't believe in any of the international order stuff you know here is an adversary that we are facing uh, and there's somebody else doing the fighting and we are just you know spending you know order of tens of billions to to help help you know those people do do the fighting i think it's a it's a tremendous deal for 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 Americans if you if you are if you are a realist. Yeah, I mean, I look, I I agree. I, I going back, you know, I, one of the common themes on on this podcast is how I hate um, 
monocausal explanations for things that are complicated. And um, I first started obsessing about that in the run up to the Iraq war, where I remember Tim Russert, who was then the host of Meet the Press, would continuously ask administration officials, what's the one reason we should do this? What is the one reason? And it's like, like, you don't go into a war for a single, I mean, sometimes you go for a single reason if they invade you, right? <laughs> you know, like Pearl Harbor was the one reason we declared war on Japan and that was totally fine. But normally uh, when you're doing something complicated and important, you do it for a bunch of different reasons. And, and for me, it's a checklist and of, of the reasons why we should be doing this. But we are actually, we should also just stress that we are not fighting the war and nobody's sort of advocating us fighting the war. That's right. That's what I mean, this is. So th I just want to come up with this recently. This is one of my big problems with with the debates about this is that almost everybody's arguing about hypothetical things and nobody's actually arguing about what the actual policy is. And so, you know, you have people like Andy Biggs saying we can't give them tanks because, you know, Americans are going to end up in the tanks. Sort of the predicate of that is that you're OK. You'd be OK if we were giving tanks and Americans didn't end up in the tanks. And that's actually what the policy is. So, you know, it's it's very frustrating. But I can see there are there are a handful of reasons I can see that against helping Ukraine. And then there's just dozens of reasons to help Ukraine. I mean, the pros and cons list is really asymmetric. And, you know, the the fear of nuclear war is one. But at the same time, if if that overrides everything else, then basically we have, a, have to have a policy of Russia can do whatever it wants um, if it's going to threaten to do nuclear war. We can't have that policy. And then the other ones are like, it's expensive. It is expensive, but it's cheaper than a lot of the alternatives. And, and on the pro side, it's the right thing. You know, there's a moral case. There's an idealistic case. There's, um, and there's a realpolitik case. And, um, but the debate in the States, at least, is purely about ifs and buts and not about the re the facts on the ground. And it, it, and it's not really a debate as far as I can tell. Right. I mean, like Kevin McCarthy's argument is we can't give the Ukrainians a, a blank check and we haven't been giving them a blank check. And so it's, it's like punching jello. It's a very difficult argument to have because no one's actually making real arguments. I mean, it would be, uh, I guess it would be quite helpful if, if we had actually a sort of conversation about oversight and whether there needs to be an inspector general appointed, especially for this particular purpose, although the three inspector generals from Defense State Department, the USAID, traveled to Ukraine last week. I mean, there is all kinds of oversight sort of mechanisms put in place, both for the military equipment, there are you know, GPS trackers on everything. There is no evidence that any of the weapons would be diverted away from the front lines. I mean, it all ends on the battlefield. And mm -hmm. then when it comes to the actual money, uh, I mean, you know, most of the assistance that Ukrainians are getting is being disbursed through international financial institutions. And like, we are not living in the 1960s where governments mm -hmm. would be getting big, big checks. I mean, there is a lot of oversight and a lot of sort of rigor that goes into, right. that, into that process. Uh, on the other hand... And most of the money actually stays in America because we're buying stuff right, and right. we send so, them so, the so stuff. Much of the military assistance is being spent on refilling Pentagon stocks. Right. Uh, and we are sending them, you know, old stuff that's been sitting there that was being decommissioned. The same is true of the Europeans, right? They are well, discovering that they have these Leopard 1 tanks from the 70s sitting in stocks. They need to be repaired. They'll be sent to, to Ukraine. They'll have to buy, you know, new equipment 
I guess to to to, to refill those those stocks. I mean, it's uh, defense experts would tell you that 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 much of this spending is stuff that 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 should have been happening regardless of what happens in 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 Ukraine. That that there have been these sort of overdue. Uh, just sort of lack of investment into into our defense capabilities and, and modernization that that is only occurring as a result of 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 of, of, of this, which is very much in our interest. Um, all right, so let's move over to the EU. Um, explain, uh, since you're a Danubian thinker, uh, what the hell is going on with Germany? Because on the one hand, their 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 recalibration to defense spending and and all that has been so welcome, and on the other hand, it seems like every single time they make a step forward, they have to make a half step backwards, or they have to. They always sound like remember you know when you play, you play if you play chess when you're especially when you're a little kid, you just agonize about letting go of the piece because then you're you can't take it back, and so you just. You move the piece and then you just keep your fingers pinched on it forever. That seems to be what's going on with every major decision they make is it's incredibly reluctant teeth pulling exercise. Do you do you think they're the the new German perspective is going to stay or are they going to backslide again? I mean, that's that's the sort of thousand dollar question. I'm I'm I'm. I'm really not sure what the answer is because to me uh, the german attitude has been at least as frustrating as as the sort of us discussion it's it's in some ways um ways um, a version of the same debate about you know escalation what are the fears of us doing more for the ukrainians sending them more uh i mean germany has been very sort of forthcoming in in in, in trying to address uh the issue of their energy dependency on Russia and and trying to just sort of move away from from just depending on 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 Russian natural gas, you can have quibbles with the way they are going about it. I mean, a lot of it consisted of throwing a lot of money at German businesses in a sort of unilateral fashion that annoyed everybody else in Europe. Uh, but I think there has been a sort of realization that Russia is not a reliable partner. Uh, I think Chancellor Scholz was ultimately sincere when he delivered this address. Uh, what is it? Almost um, almost a year ago, uh, the 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 speech where he says the world has changed. We have to adjust. Announced a new hundred billion fund for to to, to sort of rebuild uh, German German armed forces. Uh, has been very little progress on that front domestically, and sort of beefing up German military capabilities. And there has been this sort of teeth pulling process of. Of providing assistance to 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 the Ukrainians and creating these artificial red lines that three months later the Germans would cross, just as we had our own red lines that we sort of crossed. Uh, anyway, um, so I think it's worth sort of thinking through the politics of the moment. Uh, there obviously is uh, that sort of post-war shadow of of these sort of horrors that 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 that, that you know germans inflicted on on the rest of europe and uh and 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 and, and the real fear of of a strong germany uh in in germany in germany itself there is um i guess uh, 
Germany was the nation that sort of embodied this this embrace of the idea of progress and overcoming conflict as an integral part of politics. I mean, you see it in the sort of consensual nature of German politics, coalition governments, and 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 and, and, and you know you have a consensus that's congealed. It's very difficult to change it, uh, and this this war came as a shock. Um, but I wonder if it's enough of a shock to to really change Germany in a in a in a sustained way. One reason why I'm somewhat skeptical is that is, is because clearly German public opinion is split on on how much forthcoming Germany should be and on how much assistance it should provide Ukraine and how decisive Ukrainian victory should should look like. When you look at the political parties, I mean, you really have to go to the fringes, to the AFD and to the D-Linke to have sort of to hear explicitly pro-Russian voices or anti-Ukrainian voices. Christian uh, yeah, Democrats in the opposition, uh, the, the Free Democrats, the Greens, have uh, been very vocal in, in, in their support uh, for, for Ukraine. So you have to wonder whether that does not create an opening for the SPD, a party that traditionally has been you know, investing in ties with Russia and has a you know long history, starting with uh, former Chancellor Schroeder of, of 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 trying to you know do business with Russia, hoping that doing business with Russia will somehow change the country. That that whether that party and 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 its leader, who happens to be the Chancellor, does not see an opening in in being the sort of more prudent, more careful voice on these matters, and one who would ultimately like. You know, if not a return to a status quo ex ante, but at least some kind of quasi normalization of, of 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 the relationship. I mean, you're you're being diplomatically kind to Gerhard Schroeder, who is basically no, a, he's a, he's, a, he's a crook. I mean, like if if, if, yeah. if your listeners have any sort of questions, he's a paid or, vassal of the Russian government and 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 or Gazprom or whatever. I mean, and uh, I just was listening to the Telegraph podcast about Ukraine, which I'm kind of addicted to. And, uh, oh, it's Francis Dernley, right? And, and his colleagues. They're, they're excellent. Yeah. Not, not quite as good as our podcast, the Eastern Front. Of course not. Of course not. Of course but very good. And, uh, but I did not know, um, that Gerhard Schroeder has been married so many times that his nickname in Germany is the Lord of the Rings. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I just thought was great. That's very funny. Uh, um, so I mean, the reason why, I mean, it seems to me that one of the reasons why Germany matters is not, not just because it's the, the biggest economy, you know, in, in, in Europe, um, I assume it's the biggest economy in Europe, right? I mean, what would be bigger? France. Yeah. And, uh, but because I I was listening to an interview with a French journalist recently and, um, and, you know, France struggles with its Ukraine support too, because Macron is a, is a is an egghead who thinks he can order everything off menu and in a bespoke way on, on, on all his policies. But, um, the one refrain is that she said is that we're better than Germany. And, um, and I can see why in a lot of Europe, that's a standard, right? Like if Germany is here, then we can all be, you know, 10% better. And that's why I think Germany matters in a lot of ways is, is if they, it gives it gives much less maneuvering room for other reluctant countries if germany you can't just say oh we're you know we're more pacifistic or we're more toadying to russia than germany i mean that's just not a safe place for anybody to be and um and yet it just doesn't seem like germany can 
can maintain a line on this. So, 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 so what I struggle with is, is really uh, this undeniable fact that both France and Germany uh, are doing much more and are being more effective at helping Ukraine than anybody could have expected recently yes. a year ago. Right. So, so by that token, like we have seen a major transformation, and and actually, you know, just to sort of defend Germans for 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 a bit, like you know, the military equipment that they've sent to to the Ukrainians is making a big difference. Like even even before um, the Leopard decision was made, they were sending these these Gepard anti. Uh, anti-air um, sort of vehicles, uh, the Iris, the missiles. Now, we've come a long way from the 5,000 helmets that were announced initially. So it's now it's a quarter million winter hats I saw on the website of the <laughs> Bundeswehr and uh, 116,000 winter jackets. Uh, no, I'm sort of joking, but it's, it's part <laughs> of the package. Yeah. But, but there are lots of like sort of like serious, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, good equipment that, that the Ukrainians are putting to good use. And the same is true of the French. Uh, I mean, one constraint, obviously, is that the industrial base and, and the stocks of these militaries are limited. And, and so even if they were to really go all in and, and, and try to give as much as possible, uh, it just would be no match for, 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 for the Americans. And, and then we would still have a major role to, to play in all that. Uh, but there is this sort of, there, I mean, there is this reluctance for the French. I mean, it's not a, like in, in a way, given France's geography, you know, Eastern Europe is far away. Uh, they are preoccupied with what's happening in the Maghreb, with with terrorism, uh, with, with with that kind of stuff. And it it, it and then obviously Macron is, you know, in the sort of French sort of tradition of 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 trying to be the smartest person in the room. And he got these ideas from you know his mentor Paul Ricoeur that you should address every crisis by doing you know thesis and antithesis and and synthesis, overcoming the. The, the, the contradictions, hence the sort of diplomatic effort and the aid to Ukraine uh, going on at the at the same time. Germans are sort of stuck in 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 in, in the past to some extent, and, and and sort of haunted by by the sort of shadows of of everything that happened in the first half of the twentieth century. But like, I'm I'm not sure if whether the glass is half full or half empty. To, to me, the big question is, you know, are we doing enough for Ukrainians to win? And to that, the answer, sorry to say, is no, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we we are probably going into a fighting season in which uh, Russia will attempt some form of offensive in 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 in, in the Donbas. Will it probably won't be terribly successful, uh, but it doesn't seem obvious to me that that the Ukrainians are on track to to retake the. The country this year, and if they don't do it this year, you know they will have lost another fifty thousand men. Will they say let's do it for another year? I'm 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 not quite sure. Explain so. So you're Slovakian. Yep. By birth, right? You're American now. Congratulations. Thank you. Um. Um. Why is it like? Explain to me. How there can be what what is the basis of pro-Russian sentiment in Eastern European countries? I mean, particularly Hungary. Um, um, you know, as you know, uh, my wife's family, my father, my father-in-law was Slovakian, and um, and 
everybody I knew when I lived in Prague, you know, just the idea that you would sort of got to see both sides um, when it came to a Russian invasion of a of a of a bordering East European country um, just seems so I, I, it's very hard for my imagination to get around it, particularly when this isn't a complicated moral story. Right. I mean, Russia is the bad actor. It's the villain. It's doing terrible things. Um, and yet there are sizable numbers of people. I mean, I, I get it in Germany. I don't like it, but I get it. Ostpolitik and all that. But how can you be a Hungarian or a Slovakian or um, I guess not a Pole, but, you know, how can you be one of these former captive nations and say, well, you got to hear both sides or, you know, yeah, I have to understand where Russia is coming from. Where does that come from? It's a fascinating question. I think the, the first thing to to say is that Central and Eastern Europe is far from being homogenous on, 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 on these matters. And even when you look at, you know, the Czech Republic and, 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 and Slovakia, I mean, there is a massive, massive difference. I mean, the, the Czechs had recently the presidential election in the run-up to the second, uh, second round. One of the candidates, Andrei Babiš, was using the sort of you know, anti-war, pro-peace, you know, thinly veiled sort of anti-Ukrainian tropes, essentially to to to, to propel himself to, to to what he thought would be a victory, and then he failed miserably. I mean, the, the Czechs just wouldn't have any of that, uh, and they now have you know a sort of strongly Atlanticist president-elect, one that would sort of stress the need to to help Ukraine at at every instance. Uh, in Slovakia, public opinion seems to be much more divided, much like in, say, Hungary or Bulgaria or or, or Greece, for that matter. Uh, and it's uh, it's odd to sort of see that given the historic experience. So Czechoslovakia was invaded by mm-hmm. by, by 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 Soviet forces, and uh, you know the, the whole Warsaw Pact in 1968. Hungary had an even much bloodier sort of experience with, with, with the Soviet invasion in 1956. And to, to me, I, I mean, the, the key really is sort of political leadership and the question of whether people in key positions in government and, and in the elite are using, uh, you know, various traumas of the past to not, not so much foster pro-Russian sentiments, but rather erode the, the commitment that these countries have in, 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 in the Western alliance. So, so obviously Hungary has, uh, you know, its beef going back to 1920, the dismemberment of the greater Hungarian kingdom. And, 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 and from that, there is a certain sort of distrust of the West and Western powers. And Viktor Orban, while he was in office, uh, was sort of catering to those sentiments on a regular basis, unlike before. I mean, he used to be mm-hmm. a very sort of Atlanticist leader. You can go back, right. you know, watch his videos, like from 2008, from the time when Georgia was invaded by Russia. I mean, he was, uh, you know, he, he was very sound on these matters uh, 15 years ago. Uh, it's just, uh, it's just, just while in office and while sort of transforming himself into what he is now. Uh, it was far more convenient for him to sort of play the victimhood card to say that Hungary can't really put all its bets on, you know, either the EU or the United States. We have to have a balanced foreign policy. We have to reach out to Russia and China. You know, Hungary was among the most enthusiastic uh, countries in the region to sign up for the Belt and Road Initiative. Already in 2011, there were the summits 
with, 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 with the Chinese. So it wasn't so much sort of being actively pro-Russian as, 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 as really sort of putting little question marks in a sort of, you know, again, in a sort of drip, drip, drip fashion over the importance of the, of the transatlantic link. And, and you've seen something similar done in, 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 in Slovakia by politicians who sort of belong to sort of major, major political parties, uh, not actively sort of advocating for Slovakia to say, you know, leave NATO or the European Union, but, uh, but, but sort of using every opportunity to say something sort of, you know, anti-American or, or sort of anti-Western or try to, you know, bring Brussels into every sort of domestic political conflict. Uh, and, 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 and that's just, you know, that's very poor statecraft in, 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 in my opinion, even though it does generate political gains. I mean, you don't see that in Poland. You don't see that in Poland, which is massively polarized country, you know, in, in some ways more polarized than, say, Slovakia. Uh, but there are some basic things that everybody in Poland agrees on, namely that we need, you know, the Americans, we need to be part of, of these, you know, Western integration structures in order to preserve our, our statehood. I mean, they sort of, you know, get the big things in a way uh, Slovaks, Hungarians just, just, just don't. Yeah, so I, 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 I take your point and your argument about the statesmanship or the, the, the national security strategy behind both sides. I mean, you know, there, we saw a lot of that in the Cold War, the non-aligned movement, that kind of thing. I guess what I'm flummoxed by is the idea that you could go into a bar or a pub or a coffee shop and strike up a conversation with somebody, you know, a, a Slovakian, um, a Hungarian, even I'm sure it's, there are some Poles who see things differently, who is not a statesman, right? It may be a mechanic or a um, salesman or whatever. I mean, they could be very, very educated or poorly educated, but regardless, just someone who actually as a matter of conviction sees this as a much more either complicated thing than it seems to me from my vantage point or is actually just objectively pro-Russian. And I mean, maybe I should get a psychologist on to talk about that instead of you, but like, I, it's just a very strange thing to me. It is very strange and it, it certainly exists. Uh, I mean, I've you know, been having this conversation with my parents who, I mean, they live back in Slovakia. Uh, I've been you know, flying a Ukrainian flag on our little townhouse in, 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 in Arlington. They said that they probably wouldn't put a you know, Ukrainian flag sticker on their car because it could get damaged. There mm -hmm. would be sort of you know, pro-Russian thugs going around and, 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 and so on. I mean, there is a sort of you know, bona fide neo-Nazi party in parliament uh, so, 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 you know, like, is it, is it sort of supply side driven, demand side driven is a, is a very difficult question, but, but I think what's central to that and what's sort of shared between say Slovakia and, and, and Hungary and, and other places is not so much the affinity for Russia per se and, 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 and the Kremlin, but rather the sort of sense that we've been victims of the West. We've been somehow, um, mistreated by by western powers i mean you know hungarian story is the one of trianon and the sort of dismemberment of uh of uh hungarian kingdom after the the first world war the slovak story is um 
I, I would argue far stupider than that. There is a sort of idea that after the collapse of, of communism, uh, I mean, there was obviously a, a difficult transition in which heavy industries across Slovakia were being closed. Uh, and people blame Václav Havel, for example, who was the president of, 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 of Czechoslovakia for closing down, especially sort of like military equipment factories mm-hmm. in, in sort of northern Slovakia. And, and, and the country had a very high unemployment rate throughout the 1990s. And there is a sort of idea that this was all sort of a plot concocted by the Americans to do harm to, to, to Slovakia. Throughout the 1990s, um, when Slovakia for a while dropped out of the first wave of EU and NATO enlargements, uh, there was this narrative that uh, there is sort of a clique of Hungarians and Jews sort of plotting to to do harm to us, that, that we've always been sort of victims throughout history and, and and we can't really trust the West. And and that was coming from political leaders uh, and and has become entrenched in a, in, a, in in a way that uh, like if you want to be a sort of catch-all party leader, populist type, you just have to sort of cater to that sentiment in in in, in some some shape or form. Um, you mentioned how there's a actual Nazi party uh, yep. in Slovakia, right? Um, how many of those? Parties are, because there's like trying to explain this to my daughter who doesn't have a, who had, let me put it this way, has a normal person's uh, understanding of, of the politics of Eastern Europe and all that kind of thing. And she had asked me a while ago about this, just like, as you know, Putin is claiming, you know, his original pretext for invading Ukraine was denazification, right? And Russia is obsessed as as basically turned itself into sort of a cargo cult of the Second World War, and they're convinced that everybody is a Nazi. And and yet, most it seems like most of the Nazi parties or quasi parties in Europe are funded by Russians. Um, is 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 that wrong? And like, do the like we just saw this sort of essentially de facto Nazi in Sweden turned out was the guy who did the Quran burning. Yep. And it turns out he was at one point, basically an asset of Russia or, or de facto asset of Russia and that kind of thing. And like, how, how do the Nazi, the, the sort of the Nazi parties reconcile the fact that Putin is going, is his his ne plus ultra is denazification when these guys are all you know sort of one degree or another nazis or am i just misunderstanding the groundwork no no i don't think you you're misunderstanding anything but the distinction to be made is i think between propaganda that's sort of done for domestic purposes and for domestic consumption and obviously in in, in russia the memory of the second world war and sort of horrific human cost that 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 came with is is still strong and and Putin's regime has been using that as much as possible, trying to sort of see itself as a successor, I suppose, to to those to those efforts and and trying to frame conflicts that Russia is involved in as as as, as these sort of fights against against Nazism and it goes hand in hand, obviously, with the revival of the cult of Stalin in in in, in recent years. Uh, in, in Russia, it sort of plays to this, I guess, like, and, and you know, our colleague Leon Aaron would, would tell you more about this, this 
this this narrative of 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 Russia as a universal empire of sorts mm-hmm. in 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 a way uh, that's not necessarily the message that's being sort of sent to to those you know leaders of of, of small you know fringe parties in in Europe. That I think the Russian interest is is really in trying to destabilize political systems uh, across across Europe. I'm I'm fairly agnostic about how effective those efforts are to what extent these parties are driven by sort of local popular demand and failures of you know local mainstream parties etc i think you know domestic conditions and sort of domestic politics are a much stronger driver of all this than than any russian funding i'm not even sure you know much has been sort of proven with regard to to, to the slovak neo nazis and their russian connections i mean yes there've been mm-hmm. instances of like people working at the russian embassy like giving 500 euros per blog post to somebody but like you know like how much sort of effect that that sort of buys the russians uh in terms of of of, of sort of influence remains uh remains unclear but but humans are very good at dealing with cognitive um dissonance mm-hmm. uh until it sort of reaches proportions that are just too difficult to bear and and you know too many contradictions to to deal with and uh, and I think it's one of those things where I, I don't think, you know, neo-Nazis across Europe think very deeply about the sort of meaning of Russian domestic, uh, domestic propaganda. They, you know, for them is much more their, their dislike of the West, their dislike of the United States, their dislike of the European Union, their dislike of immigrants, their dislike of, you know, in some cases, wokeism and, 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 you know, all these sort of new fashions that are being brought into, into, into our public cultural life to just trumps you know all of those you know mm-hmm. contradictions that, that 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 sort of exist on on their side yeah no look, i i think that's probably right i mean my um my experience is that that i like good arguments so much that i assume i project that on others and like and there's just a lot of people who are very comfortable having very contradictory opinions and you know, it's sort of like the Joker in Dark Knight. Some people just want to see the world burn, right? And they don't really care about arguments. And um, the one place I, I'll disagree with you slightly, um, I don't know if it's a disagreement, but I'll just say, you know, there's been a lot of pushback lately, Twitter files stuff about how the Russia collusion thing was, you know, manufactured. And that's all fine. I'm not going to get into the argument about that. But I will say that, like, Having, you know, in the 2016 election cycle, the Anti-Defamation League ranked me, I think, six on the list of victims of anti-Semitic attacks on social media. Um, and I will say that, like, when I would look at some of these, you know, pictures that had me in a gas chamber and that kind of yeah. stuff, and I would go through those feeds, it started to turn Cyrillic pretty quickly. Okay. in them right and again I, I have no idea if that's russian funded or what you know fine that's all fine i do think that um there is a lot of return on investment to have trolls attacking quote-unquote influencers in in the west politicians journalists and whatnot in part because it does put you all it does give you this sense that the system is less stable than it is and it makes you paranoid and start looking for 
overreactions, underreactions. How come this is going on? And you know, it took me a little while to get over my anger, not at the anti-Semitic attacks. I'm, I've been getting anti-Semitic attacks for a very, very long time. Um, um, but at the inability of a lot of my sort of peers and colleagues to condemn it, and a lot of them basically took the attitude of why are you making a big deal about this? You know, like they would put pictures of my friend, David French's, you know, adopted uh, daughter in a gas chamber with Hitler with, with Trump in a SS uniform about to push the button. And I would say, this is disgusting. I don't understand why this isn't being denounced by, you know, and it, like by, and people would say, you know, just ignore it. What's the big deal kind of thing. And that is a very difficult thing psychologically for people to deal with. And I think I, I, I could be wrong, but I just think Russia, the 500 pounds for 500 bucks for a blog post kind of funding is very minor as a, as a budget item, but there's actual real return on investment when you have, you inculcate in people's minds that there are large numbers of actual Nazis out there or Klansmen or, or, or pedophiles or whatever, creating that kind of paranoia is really destabilizing, particularly at these sort of weak points. And I know a lot of journalists who were truly freaked out and stopped tweeting, stopped writing things, were very reluctant to criticize Trump because of the social media attacks. Um, and some of that was obviously, a lot of that was probably just domestic, but I do get the sense that like, some of those bot farm things from Russia are, were part of that as well. And it doesn't have to be a huge undertaking to have been influential. No, I mean, there, there's no question about the fact that Russia, that, that they have been doing that, right? Like the evidence of like troll farms, you know, St. Petersburg based sort of companies that have been sort of flooding social media in the West with disgusting filth and, and, mm -hmm. and, 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 and bile and, and you know this information and, and and all the rest of it like 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 that that's been happening of course like they they've been doing that uh they've been doing that in order to spread you know destabilize our you know political systems of disrupt our political conversations uh the 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 question mark though is you know like how effective that's been and how much of it that we've seen like you know we would have been perfectly willing to do to ourselves even in the absence of, of, of Russian interference. So, so one small data point is this recent study, uh, which got widely publicized over the past couple of weeks. Uh, Jan Zielinski, who's a, another Slovak political scientist working at the University of, 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 of Munich, is one of the co-authors on this. So they, they looked at the impact of, of, sort of Russian uh, disinformation and, 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 and social media campaigns in the run-up to the Trump election, and, and they find very little actual sort mm -hmm. of impact on 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 the electoral outcome uh however i mean you know your, your point still stands i mean that there has been i mean there has been a concerted effort by 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 by, by the russians to you know divide us to just you know do bad things and spread doubt uh among you know western western populations and and it's quite plausible that you know those efforts worked in some places more effectively than than in others right so they didn't really get very far in the baltic states they mm -hmm. could have possibly gotten much further in a place like Slovakia or Bulgaria or, you know, Hungary, where there might be a sort of pre-existing, pre-existing pre appetite for 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 some of those arguments. 
right, let's go back to the, the Ukraine stuff. Um, um, I'm kind of fascinated by this um, anti-German uh, posturing from Poland. Um, I think it's like, I hate to say it, it's, I, I think it's kind of awesome. <laughs> I mean, it's at least fascinating. I mean, I don't know. Um, the is is that something I should actually be more worried about down the road, or is it just um, you know, I mean, like like you talk about how the Hungarians are paranoid, or have this thing about the West trying to dismantle them and the cabal of you know Jews or whatever and places that kind of thing. Like Poland's got a right to air some grievances towards Germany, and um, and if it's driving them to be more supportive of Ukraine, that's all the better. Um, I think that's that's basically correct. I mean, I know I I I like it at, at, at the sort of gut level too. Uh, I would have some concerns though. Uh, one concern is that you know Poland is a big country uh, and could potentially be a very influential one, including in the EU, uh, and uh, it needs political capital. It needs you know trust and and relationships with with other countries and with european institutions in order to be to be influential and to be effective uh and my concern with the current polish government which again they've been wonderful on ukraine uh i mean poles have been as a as a, as a, as a collective whole just like beyond anything we could have possibly imagined in terms of like how they taken in ukrainian refugees mm-hmm. uh going out of their way to to help i mean i have only good things to say about Poland, but but I f- suspect that Poles could be, um, I think in in a you know playing a sort of different league in terms of building coalitions within the EU and and pressing the the Germans to to do the right thing, and they would be more effective at that if they hadn't squandered some of their political capital on on sort of minor things like you know, mm-hmm. culture wars with Brussels and talking about German reparations. Uh, having these standoffs over the rule of law where, uh, you know, it's a complicated question and I don't want to even put Poland in the same category as Hungary because it is not in the same category. But my, my fear is that we can end up after the next Polish election, which is this fall, in a situation where there would be, you know, the opposition coming to power uh, and that would take a much more sort of accommodative s- stance towards Germany and will try to invest much more into restoring those those European relationships while forgetting uh, that there are actual things we want Western Europeans to do. In a way, that would be a result of, of, of this sort of polarized environment in which certainly both under, you know, agree on the big things, but I mean, there are these sort of details of, of, of the sort of European policy and, and who their partners are in the EU that that, that that have become increasingly a sort of polarizing political issue. And it used to be the case that the French and the Germans would have summits with, with Polish leaders. Uh, it, was, it was called the Weimar format. The presidents would meet, the foreign ministers would meet, and it just that, that kind of thing just stopped existing uh, since 2015, since the law and justice came to power, partly because uh, of sometimes sort of virulently anti-German rhetoric coming from 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 the Polish side, so so I think you know Poles could be more influential than they are, and I want them to be more influential. I want them, you know, I want their voice to be amplified, 
uh, but sometimes they are sort of their own worst enemy in, 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 in that respect. And I mean, it's an important, I think, sort of task for, you know, the Biden administration and for other sort of outside actors that are sort of trusted by both sides to, to actually help amplify that Polish voice and, and, you know, reward them for good behavior and, and, and because they've really done, you know, wonderful things and, and I want them to, to play a much sort of bigger political role in, 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 in Europe than they currently are playing. Um, yeah, it's that, you know, that kind of, it's a good segue to the question of, um, Ukrainian, um, membership in, in the EU. Um, uh, it seems to me, I mean, you know, orders of magnitude more about EU rules than I do. Uh, but it seems to me that there's just no way you can, you can quote unquote fast track. Ukrainian Ukraine's application, but you can't make it fast. Like I just don't, I don't see how those politics work. And um, so, maybe just sort of the level set. Um, I assume you think Ukraine should eventually be part of the EU, um, but what do you think that the the foreseeable timetable for that is? So I should preface all that by saying that you know I sort of found my little niche at AEI working on sort of European questions from a you know center right free market conservative-ish perspective while also being sort of pro-EU as a direct consequence of my visit to Ukraine in 2014. And mm. just a few weeks after the Maidan, speaking to, to the young Ukrainians for whom uh, this was a sort of very clear-cut civilizational choice. Like we either try to, to join the EU and try to you know, emulate what Poland and other Central Eastern European countries are, have, have done, had done with success, or we are just sort of stuck in this post-Soviet no man's land of corruption and you know organized crime and 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 and, and Russian interference and and so on and so forth and and it sort of drove home for me that there was something really important that was missing from especially the sort of conversation among English-speaking folks about the EU that it's not you know a sort of plot by Brussels elites to you know destroy national sovereignty but it's in many ways, a sort of bottom-up project that does serve important sort of goals that that matter for 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 you know normal people in, in countries like Poland or, or 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 Ukraine. That said, there are many problems with the project, and one of them is 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 is, is the fact that it is bureaucratized, rules-based, and technocratic. And in Brussels right now. Especially at the European Commission, there is a lot of enthusiasm for Ukraine and Ukraine's membership. I think the um, Director General that deals with these matters, they have beefed up. They're really trying to do their best. But ultimately, I mean, the EU is a body in which the member states have the final say. And, and the Commission, they have their playbook, which is a very sort of bureaucratic one, consists of ticking boxes and going through the negotiations and you know, opening new chapters and 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 even if they were very eager to, you know, rush through those negotiations as fast as possible, I mean, there are you know like real challenges associated with with with, with membership in terms of you know getting the reforms in place in in Ukraine, getting them up to speed with with European rulebook and regulations, the so-called acquis communautaire. But even if that all that went right, uh, there would be uh, this sort of question of politics in the 
in the in the in the background and and the sort of question of whether the French and the Germans really want a country of forty four million uh, in the EU, uh, you know, really shifting the sort of political center of gravity to the east. Uh, it's a country that you know is a, in in real terms is at, at one half of of Bulgaria's per capita income, so it's very very poor. It's very very agricultural. It, it, I mean, it, yeah, there, there'd be sort of real money required for the for the reconstruction. Uh, so, so it is a it is a tall order to 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 bring Ukraine into the EU now. Uh, I think what needs to be done is to is to sort of think. You know, we need to think creatively about EU membership as as being not this binary zero one thing where you're either in or you're out, but we need to think about ways in which. Some of the benefits of, of of EU membership can be extended to Ukraine not in twenty years' time. I mean, like Albania has been waiting like twenty well, years. That, to that's join, exactly right? the, the sort of <laughs> counterfactual we want to avoid. Uh, what happened in the Balkans since late nineteen nineties is a situation in which these countries got candidate status, uh, entered into negotiations, and those negotiations have been stalled for a variety of reasons. And in the meantime. Uh, these populations have become more and more embittered with the EU and, and sometimes playing sort of double-faced games, bringing in China, you know, like Serbia is the worst in, in, in all mm-hmm. of this. Uh, but you could argue that that's partly a result of, of the sort of unwillingness of, of the EU to really uh, take enlargements to the East seriously. And I mean, it's, it's an important debate, like, you know, can, can the EU enlarge indefinitely, right? Like, can we... Can the EU sort of make decisions at its current size effectively? And if not, would it help to bring in, you know, an even more sort of diverse set of countries in? Uh, That's why I think sort of like political leaders need to find ways around that. Like, you know, ultimately, for for me, looking beyond this war, like I want Ukraine to be an A plus country, not the B minus country that it was for a very long time before before the war. And and you can do that by, I guess, sort of creating political incentives in the country to do the right thing and not to revert back to the old corrupt practices. And and so, actually, the, the EU Commission President von der Leyen said that we need to bring Ukraine into the single market as soon as possible. We need to, and I would argue, we need to, you know, bring Ukrainian students into Erasmus programs. We have to bring Ukraine into the Schengen. Uh, zone of passportless travel and, and and do all these sort of you know symbolically important things in some cases of economically meaningful things to to, to sort of integrate ukraine without uh making them conditional going through all the sort of rigors of the of the accession process of course that would go that that cuts totally against the grain of of, of the sort of arguments that that the, the brussels and the commission and others were making about brexit right where, where the mantra was no cherry picking you're either in or out. You can't really pick, you know, different sort of That's a good point. bits yeah. and pieces of the of the integration project. Uh, and I, and in retrospect, like it, 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 it that 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 was a mistake. And I think we have to sort of get away from that narrative as soon as possible. If 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 if, if the EU is going to take care of its neighborhood effectively, and uh, just to you know give credit where credit is due to, to President Macron, this idea of European political community, this sort of platform that would be wider than the EU, which would enable the EU and non-EU nations in Europe and its neighborhood to sort of engage and, and work on common projects 
uh, I think is a is a is a actually a sound one, one in which you know the UK now is being associated with the uh, uh, the um, European EU cooperation on defense policy, for example. Like you know, you, the EU needs the Brits as close as possible. The EU needs the Norwegians as close as possible, and the EU also has interest in in it, making sure that that the Western Balkans and Ukraine and Moldova and Georgia are ultimately successful countries, not sort of, you know, basket cases run by by the Russians and Chinese. Yeah, I mean, it's it's there's a bit of an analog, you know, the I've been making the argument, I used to make the argument all the time when most illegal immigration to the U.S. was Mexican. Like, you know, the, the best way to stop illegal immigration from Mexico is to make Mexico rich. And because most people don't want to leave home if they can live in their country and make money in their country and having a good living for their kids, you know, you leave, you become an economic migrant when prospects are bad at home, make Mexico rich. People will stop wanting to come to a country where they don't speak the language and taking crappy jobs. And, you know, but at the same time, you, if you get rid of, if you, if you apply the Schengen stuff to Ukraine, don't you get the sort of Polish plumber problem or the politics of the Polish plumber problem at on a massive scale, if you have, you know, uh, a country of 40 million people with we're much poorer than Poland, you know, um, desperate, you know, for uh, higher wages. Possibly you do. Um, although uh, in this current war, I mean, you've had millions and millions of Ukrainians already leave. Uh, yeah. You have maybe four, maybe five, maybe six million Ukrainians living in, in in Poland, like the exact numbers are hard to come by, and it's actually going to be a challenge for the for for, for the Ukrainian leadership after the war to to bring these country the, these people back, uh, especially if you know kids get enrolled in schools and and, and mm-hmm. people find jobs, etc. And it's been mostly women and children that have been leaving, but 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 still, I mean, the sort of brain drain is an is an issue. But you know, brain drain was an issue for 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 Poland for the Baltic states. Uh, but I don't think it sort of doomed their, their economic prospects, right? And many of these people have started coming back. I mean, you can you know, live in Warsaw and, and enjoy Western European quality of life these days fairly fairly easily if you are a sort of you know, well-educated professional. So, 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 so that, that, that sort of force that drove people away from these countries, I think is much weaker these days. Uh, and, you know, the, the sooner we can get Ukraine to similar, you know, per capita levels and similar, you know, quality of public services, uh, the, 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 the less likely is, it is that, that, that the Ukrainians will be sort of, you know, flooding Western European labor markets, which, by the way, they, they haven't been doing even, even in this war. Like most of them stay, are staying in, in Poland. And actually, even before, from before the war, um, the, the story of Ukrainian immigration to Poland and, and Belarusian immigration to Poland is a, is a story of an incredible sort of success. Of, 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 of integration. I mean, people come in, learn the language in two months, and and are just sort of integral part of 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 of, of the Polish of the Polish society. So, so I'm not terribly fearful. I mean, it it you know it's one of those things like you know people who are free they move around. I mean, that's um, I guess you know that's part. That's of how we got you. That's also part of the sort of <laughs> EU deal, right? You yeah. like if you don't like it, you don't have to do it, but uh, then you're going to to miss out on lots of things that actually are sort of enriching and and good. 
So um, this is something, this is probably wildly far-fetched, but um, at the beginning of the Russian invasion, um, there was a lot of talk about Russia recruiting foreign fighters, right? And the, the, the Syrian guys kind of didn't materialize as far as I can tell, but maybe, you know, something, you know, there was a lot, there were a lot of videos in the beginning of like large numbers of Syrian soldiers coming and the aid their brother Russians and, and nothing seemed to come of that. The, 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 um, Chechens are definitely there. Um, is there, and I know there are foreign fighters on the Ukrainian side as well. Um, but they're not really organized by other countries. They're not organized by governments. These are basically like the Lincoln brigades in the Spanish Civil War. They're just sort of voluntary kind of things. Is there any chance that you could see another country actually sending in troops? I know, I, I think the NATO is going to send troops thing is a non-starter. That's not going to happen. Um, but, you know, there's nothing in the NATO charter that says an individual NATO member can't send its own military in. Do you think it's possible? Because at this point, it seems, and again, I'm open to pushback on this, but you know, I've talked to a bunch of foreign policy or military experts who basically think that Poland's military alone could roll up the Russians in fairly short order. Do you think there's a scenario in which some other allied country gets into the fight with Ukraine in a formal way? Like if the, if the, um, uh, the Bielorussians, you know, if, 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 if somebody, if, if, is there some sort of reset of the board that you think could, could do that without it actually being a NATO versus Russia war? I think it's very unlikely. Uh, when the one thing that could happen, of course, is, is if, uh, Ukrainians retook control of the skies and it became safe for us to send, you know, trainers in like the way before the invasion, you had Florida National Guard training Ukrainians in Ukraine. And, and you've been, you've done bun- there have been a bunch of those programs happening. Uh, right now, it just isn't quite safe. I think for, for what you describe, you would need some really sort of major change happening on the ground, like, you know, Russians using a tactical nuclear weapon, right, against, against Ukrainians. And at that point, it would probably be necessary to send teams to, you know, clean that place up and 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 and, and sort of address that sort of you know radiation issue, and and we would probably have to protect those people as well. Uh, but but in terms of actual fighting against the Russians, that that strikes me as as, as wildly implausible. Yeah. Now, uh, me too. It just it's it's there's just a certain level of frustration that this war is very winnable if you actually had a full prepared Western army willing to do it. And, and, and you could do it without it escalating to a nuclear conflagration or whatever. But so, so I, I would argue that, I mean, the, the war is winnable even without that, if we, you know, give Ukrainians what we, what we need. And my hope is that, of course, these tanks that are being sent to Ukraine uh, will make a difference on the battlefield. Like they've been, they, they, the Ukrainians, um, you know, just to maybe push back against my sort of pessimism at the beginning of the podcast, Ukrainians have consistently exceeded expectations mm-hmm. uh, on the battlefield uh, in terms of how they've been sort of organized militarily. So, so it is possible that I'm just 
you know, overly pessimistic. And, and once we have these sort of tanks coming in, uh, now the talk is about uh, 187 Leopard tanks of the first generation, which are fairly sort of old, but, mm. you know, it's a, it's a lot of them. And if they get repaired in, in the Netherlands and Germany and being and get sent there, like, you know, that, that on, on top of everything else, on the, on the Challenger tanks and, and the other newer Leopards, and on top of the Abrams tanks, and if, if we sort of move ahead with with fighter jets, if if, if and if that that doesn't take until twenty twenty four, you could imagine, you know, Ukrainian military being able to sort of retake those territories and also becoming one of the major, you know, the biggest European military powers as well in the in the process. The other theory that I know I know you're not a a Russia expert per se, but you're more expert than I. Um, or than me. Um, uh, so we've seen in Ukraine how, first of all, the Russian claims that if you speak Russian, you're a Russian, you know, the sort of, um, the, the claims that the, that, that uh, being a Russian speaker is a more powerful, uh, um, source of identity than it's not as powerful a source of identity as the Russians thought it was, right? And that there, the lot of Russians, including you know Zelensky, who grew up speaking Russian, you know, it is forcing a lot of Russian-speaking Ukrainians to embrace Ukrainian, and it's actually pushed them into the Ukrainian identity more, right? Do you have any sense, or have you read anything good? Because I keep looking for this. I'm just, you know, one of the reasons why I didn't think Russia was going to do this is that, um is that Putin was right to a certain extent that the history of Russia and Ukraine are so inextricably linked that you can't tell a whole bunch of, you know, his original rhetoric was the Ukrainians are our brothers. They are our own, you know, they are Russians, whatever. And the idea that, okay, now we're just going to go slaughter them wholesale. Didn't quite jibe with that argument, right? You know, um, to say that, oh, it's just a bunch of drug using neo-Nazis at the top but the average Ukrainian is one of us. And now this war for almost a year has basically been, you know, close to genocidal in its, in its uh, tactics. And yet I haven't seen anything good about what the Ukrainians in Russia are doing about all this, because yeah, there are a lot of Russian speakers or a lot of quote unquote ethnic Russians in Ukraine. Um, there are also a lot of quote unquote ethnic Ukrainians in Russia. And that seems to be sort of a black box. And I'm, I've been kind of surprised that there hasn't been more sabotage, more terrorism. And maybe that and I'm not saying that would be a good thing because that would probably play into Putin's hands. But it just doesn't seem to have materialized. Am I, am I missing a part of the equation? That's a, that's that's a, that's an interesting question. I, uh, I suspect. That um, I mean, there's sort of you know, th th there's a logic to Russian imperialism, which goes hand in hand with with, 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 with the language. Right, that 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 sort of Russians are seen as as the sort of master nation of this broader Russian world, and you can kind of you know join the master nation by sort of embracing the language and 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 joining the ranks, uh, and 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 be effectively becoming becoming Russian. I think Ukrainians that left Ukraine for Russia, I don't think they are, you know they've been they probably haven't been that many over the past decade or so, uh, but 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 those that have been living in Russia, I think have become, you know, sort of, they've gone 
native in 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 the sense that they probably don't see themselves uh, as having a political identity that's that's distinct from a from a Russian one, especially if they've been there since since before uh, before the uh, the fall of the of 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 the Soviet Union, because it, really Ukraine has seen a I mean, it has been independent since 1991, uh, but it has seen a sort of cultural and, and sort of political renaissance and an embrace of a distinctly Ukrainian sort of political culture, particularly after 2014, after the Maidan revolution, where you had you know, millions of people in the streets, uh, 200 killed by the security services, and they were waving EU flags and they were saying, well, we are not part of the broader Russian world. Like, we are an independent nation. We have to... We want to chart our, our own path, and 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 I'm not sure whether that sort of resonated with, you know, somebody who was of Ukrainian extraction living in in Russia. But it certainly resonated in in that broader broader, you know, Soviet Soviet space. You go forward to the twenty um, was twenty twenty or twenty twenty one the the sort of fake election in Belarus stolen by 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 by, by Lukashenko, where you had. Uh, people in the streets waving the flags of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, right? That, that, <laughs> that present-day Belarus was uh, was was part of for four hundred years, and uh, and and so so did see these Russian claims about uh, yes, like the history of Ukraine and Russia is linked, but it's linked in complicated ways, and uh, actually, much of Ukraine and and also of Belarus was part of you know the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth for for longer time than. Then it's been part of sort of Russian run, uh, either Russian Empire or, or or the Soviet Union. So, so, so I don't think it's a sort of very you know as, as clear cut case as as the Russians would like us to believe. And it's certainly not a case that's very compelling to the Ukrainians themselves. Um. All right, we got we got to wrap up. I got to get on a plane in a minute, but um, I, I do want to ask a question about because you, you talk about the. Ukrainian political identity, um, you know, I, these arguments about whether Ukraine is really just part of Russia historically and culturally and all that, I think are very interesting as a historical intellectual matter, but they don't really matter to me in the sense that Ukraine became a country. It's a country. Everyone said it was a country. It had borders and you don't get to unilaterally send tanks over a border because you don't like that border anymore. And, um, uh, and I get very frustrated with the quote unquote nationalists in America who constantly talk about the importance of borders and constantly talk about the importance of national identity and then have nothing but scorn for the concept of Ukrainian national identity when it's clearly a thing for Ukrainians. And, um, but when listening to you talk about this sort of burgeoning Ukrainian identity, how similar or different is that between the Slovakian national identity and um, and Ukrainian identity? Because, like you know, I lived in the last year of the of Czechoslovakia, and um, and I remember talking to Slovakians and and Czechs who would just simply say, uh, "This is you know the Balkan War was going on at the time," and um, I would ask them, you know, would you fight to either get out of Czechoslovakia or would you fight to keep the Slovakians in? And I never met a person who didn't say to one extent or another, are you kidding me? You want me to kill people to, 
keep them if they don't want to be here? Or do you want me to kill people to, you know, to get away? You know, it's just, it was not in the blood kind of thing. But in the last 20 years, you know, and you correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding is like the, there's been a concerted effort to embrace linguistic differences between Slovak and Czech, um, which I never really, you know, I mean, when I lived there, people talk about this Slovakian dialect to the extent they did at all as basically the equivalent of Southern dialect compared to Northern dialect in America. It was the same language, but, you know, really minor differences. That doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Um, well, so, so Slovak and Czech have always been two distinct languages, and you would have to go to the 19th century, really, where like, sort of the Slovak, you know, national movement was trying to use Czech as as the sort of language for writing and and, and sort of literature, and that really didn't go anywhere. So, so you had sort of Slovak codified fairly early on as a, as a sort of distinct language. It is true that the two languages were like to to to. Czech and Slovak speakers were perfectly sort of mutually understandable just because of the closeness of the cultural connections. Uh, that closeness still exists, uh, but there is less of it, especially on the on the Czech side. So, so Slovaks are much more exposed to Czech broadcasting, Czech literature, uh, Czech you know political conversation. It's a you know, it's a bigger market, bigger country. More stuff gets published. More TV shows are being made. Um, so sometimes, like when I speak to like young Czechs, they sort of wonder what particular Slovak words might mean. But 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 I you know I can one can still get away uh, speaking one of the two languages and and being being understood. But but to your to your broader question, uh, there is an interesting parallel between between the Slovak experience and 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 the Ukrainian one, which is you know, the risk of oversimplifying both countries. The 90, early 1990s were sort of handed over their independence on a plate, and both countries, uh, you know, took a while to figure out what to do with that independence. Slovakia, uh, really, there was this sort of active nationalist movement, but it was far from commanding a sort of majority support for for for, for Slovakia's independence. So, so it came as, as a little bit of a shock in 1992 when the decision was made. Basically, the Czech Prime Minister Václav Klaus at the time just couldn't deal with the Slovaks anymore and told them, you want independence, you know, you go, there's the door. And and that was that was it. So so I was actually part of my family is is, is Czech. We were I was eight at the time. Uh, we were not exactly thrilled by the prospect of of, of Slovakia's independence. And and the years that followed were very complicated for Slovakia, we being excluded from EU enlargements and NATO enlargements. And and so in Ukraine you had the same thing um on steroids. So you also had the sort of post-communist elite in Kiev trying to take control of the country and you know nobody knew what was happening in, in, in Moscow, the central government. So you had all these republics basically declare declare independence so that they can be run as as the sort of fiefdoms of of, of, of the sort of local former communist party elites. And, and and Ukraine, I mean unlike Slovakia, which was in a more benign international environment and had more connections to the West. Uh, you know, Ukraine really squandered close to two decades of its of its existence as an independent nation, just just sort of being caught in this sort of vicious cycle of corruption and government dysfunction and organized crime and, you know, Russian government buying politicians in Ukraine and having these deals over natural gas and so on and so forth. And, and it really took, uh, you know, Ukrainians refer to 2014 as the revolution of dignity. When they sort of took things into their own hands, 
um, and said we want to chart our own course independent of you know Russia and and, and just very different from what was the norm in the post-Soviet space. Slovaks never really had to, we never really had to make those same sorts of sacrifices. Like we always somehow just got by, by being in the right place geographically and, and, and doing the sort of minimum to, to get into, you know, NATO and, 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 and the EU. And, and I think it will be interesting to sort of watch whether that's sustainable or whether, uh, you know the, the the country's political elites will ultimately decide to really take it down the path of 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 of, of Hungary and uh, and and dismantle some of the very sort of real achievements that that, that Slovakia has seen since since its independence. All right, Dalbor Rohac, uh, it's great to have you. Thank you for doing this, and I uh, hope to have you back. Thank you so much, Jana. All right, so Dalibor has left the studio, and I got to leave my hotel room momentarily. Uh, it was uh, it was great, if so, on the sobering side, to um, uh, hear his takes on all this stuff, and um, uh, and I should disclose, just as people know, my wife's working on a book about her dad. Uh, Dalibor has been very helpful to my wife, but that is not how he uh, got onto this podcast, and um, um. Beyond that, uh, I'll see you next time. Nie, nie uvidíte. Toto je podcast. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.